Hey, all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, July 24th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're putting the fun in Fungulus Julissia. That's right, we're finally talking about the Baron's Top Minnow. Go Fungulus. Okay, we're really happy to have Dr. Bernie Kahida join us from the Tennessee Aquarium and also to welcome back Warren Stiles. Warren's a biologist with our Tennessee Ecological Services field office who's joined us before to talk about another little fish with the storied legal history, the snail darter. So warm welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Awesome. Okay, so where do the top minnows fall on the fish family tree and what does the Baron's top minnow look like? Well, on the fish family tree, they're sort of in the middle of the evolution of fishes. So they're not a primitive fish. They're not an advanced fish. They're a middle-of-the-road fish. Okay. Warren, you got anything to add? Yeah, I mean, they're kind of in there with pupfish and guppies and the top minnows. They tend to be brightly colored. Yeah, the males get these bright red spots, this iridescent green-blue. Their fins get really bright yellow to uh, sort of a neon grayish blue. They're really gorgeous little fish. They are. And is there anything about being a top minnow, like mouth placement or anything that kind of sets them apart from other fishes? Yeah, I mean, like the name implies, they up near the surface, they tend to be more surface feeders. And their mouth is actually angled up so they can feed right from the surface and maintain their horizontal position in the water column. They don't have to turn up to feed from the top. Yeah, they're super cool. They really remind me when I look at them, they look like a southern studfish in a lot of ways. What are they most closely related to within the fungulus? I mean, that's the right subgenus. They're all in Zenissima. However, this being a rare fish, the closest relative, the sister species, unfortunately, is extinct, the white line top minnow. Oh, where did that one occur? I'll let the ichthyologist from Alabama answer that question. (laughs) All right. (laughs) It used to occur in Big Spring, which flowed into Spring Creek in Huntsville, Alabama. And we think it went extinct at the turn of the last century, 1901-1902. They improved the spring habitat by getting rid of all the plants, maybe even dumping bleach in there, and that wiped it out. That's too bad. Barons Topman. What are the barons? I think that's relating to the place where this fish is found. And so what does that look like historically today? Where are we talking? So it's a part of the eastern highland rim, you know, just a step off the Cumberland Plateau in middle Tennessee. And it's this flat area called Barons because there's like a limestone hard pan underneath. And so it was an open plateau with lots of karst influence, but also this surface water that creates these open wetlands across. You can stand in one watershed and look over into the other watershed because it's so flat. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, historically, even before European settlers came, it was sort of a combination of prairie and savanna because you had these big herds of bison and elk that would graze there. And the soil's very thin, so you don't get really tall trees, especially with that grazing influence. And then there'd be the occasional fires. Then Native Americans, they would also 
create fire because they preferred those open savanna areas rather than woods because they could hunt the big herbivores. Wow. So you mentioned a specific spring for that sister species that went extinct, and we're talking about the barrens. Is it a pretty small geography that these fish are naturally found? Yeah, it's five or six counties, but rather than being one spring, it's flat. And so you have all these watersheds like interconnecting and it's a headwater fish. It was in the Duck River and the Tennessee River, different tributaries to the Caney Fork, which is a Cumberland River tributary and the Elk River, which is in the Tennessee Basin as well. Okay. And has it changed a lot since kind of Bernie, you had your nice description of what it was. What's it like today and how's it different? Today, unfortunately, that area is known as the nursery capital of the world. So Mm. there's a lot of plants grown to go Mm. to uh, people's yards there. Interesting. Okay. And the bison and elk have been replaced with cattle, which do not graze the same way. So you do not get the healthy soils underneath the grazing like you did with herds that would move through and then you know, leave the soil behind to regenerate. And a lot of the springs have been modified with small dams on them. Some of them have actually been built over and filled in. And then, of course, with those nurseries and other agriculture, you get a lot of groundwater pumping. That threatens the groundwater that feeds these springs that the Barron's Topman relies on. Oh, man. So... Every time that we've kind of talked about fish that have these really small habitats and these very particular conditions that they like to live in, it's almost always sort of been in the context of this is now a threatened or endangered species. Is that the case with the Barron's Top Minnow or how's it doing? It's a federally endangered species. This was the first critter I worked on when I came on permanent with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service doing the species status assessment that led to the listing of this fish. It's currently in five springs, less than three miles of stream. Oh, man. Do you know how many are in the wild at this point? So this is one of these endangered species where the numbers of individuals doesn't really reflect how rare it is. I work with a lot of spring endemics, darters and uh, underground springs, cavefish. And a lot of these springs, the population of the Barrens Topminnow may be in the thousands, but they're only in this one spring. And if you give them the right water, the right aquatic vegetation, and the lack of the invasive species that's driving this fish to extinction, the Western mosquito fish, they do great. Mm-hmm. They're thick, but As soon as those mosquito fish, which were introduced, we think, in the 1960s or 70s to the Barrens Plateau, as soon as they get established, in three to five years, the Barrens top minnows are gone. They're just out competing them? Prey on the larvae. Yep, and eating their young. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you all how you felt about Gambusia. (laughs) Thumbs down from Bernie. (laughs) Even though we're here in the temperate, humid southeast, In a lot of ways, this is a a desert fish, Hmm. if you wanted something comparative. I mean, Pecos pupfish, um, Gila top minnow, invasive gambusia, and groundwater use, and isolated springs. It's It's similar threats. So we have a short clip here with you, Bernie, during a top minnow rescue. We're going to hear you and a couple other biologists 
you're pulling nets, you're going through really shallow water, and then y'all are gently sifting through the mud with your bare hands and talking about the work that's happening. And I know there's a spring up above the bridge, so it'd be interesting to see if it's How many are there? What's the count right now? 26 and 27. And then you've got some more in another bucket? Mm -hmm. Just acclimating them still. This was the stronghold for Barron's top minnows, the best population left, and now it's been decimated by this invasive species and the drought. Um, but this work's important because if we hadn't rescued these 64, this entire genetic population of Barron's top minnows would have disappeared. So now we can propagate them, keep their genetic variability, and uh, reintroduce them back into other springs that don't have mosquito fish. If we had not done this, this species would be one step closer to extinction, and it's not many steps away right now. Okay, yeah, I wish we could have been there. That sounds like some really cool work. Can you tell us more about the droughts that you were talking about? Here's the problem with this species. Historically, if the spring dried up or the upper parts of these spring-fed creeks, they would just move downstream and live a happy life, wait for the drought is over, and move back upstream. But now we either have barriers to keep mosquito fish out of the spring, so there is no migration downstream, or they migrate downstream and they enter a life full of mosquito fish. So they're getting squeezed between the invasive species coming upstream and the drought pushing them downstream. And they're in an impossible situation. Mm -hmm. That's sad. At the type locality, which is, I mean, it's a pond in a guy's backyard. And Mr. Benedict's been great to work with over the years. But it dries down, you know, during drought years and not even extreme droughts we're noticing anymore which means we rally the partners and go out and pull fish out of puddles and hold them in either at CFI or a hatchery. And when the water returns, go put them back. Oh, man. It's not really a natural population in that regard. Yeah, but without these actions, it probably would be gone completely, right? Definitely. So... For the people out there who might be listening, who might not be super familiar with like invasive species ecology, they might be thinking the Barron's top minnow has had, I don't know, tens of thousands of years at least to evolve, to specialize in these conditions. How is it that a species from somewhere else like the Western mosquito fish can come in just out of nowhere and then just start out competing this fish that's been specialized for this environment? So most of our species here in North America are like three to five million years old. Okay. And so for literally millions of years, the Barron's top has evolved with really a small subset of our southeast fauna inhabiting their springs. Flame chubs, spring cave fish, a few darters and other minnows get in there, but really there's not a lot of competition. And so they've just evolved with I just live my best life. I don't have to worry about anything except maybe something from above. And if I see anything, I just dart into aquatic vegetation. I'm safe. Hmm. Now this invasive mosquito fish comes in that uses the exact same habitat they use. Shallow hmm. water. They live near the surface. They also get into the aquatic vegetation. And now they have another species that they have not seen for millions of years. And it's an aggressive species. And it's a species that has internal fertilization. So one 
female can bring in all sorts of fertilized eggs and produce a huge population of mosquito fish very fast. Hmm. And they just do not have the evolutionary adaptation to deal with mosquito fish. It's just has literally come out of nowhere for them. And that's like a really bad neighbor moving into the neighborhood, eating your young and eating all your food. Were they brought on purpose to the barrens or were they just kind of unintentionally released? We think that it may have been the health departments were scattering mm-hmm. them around for mosquito control. Of course, the irony of that is, guess what, barons? You say the barons eat mosquitoes? Yes. Yeah. They probably do a better job. <laughs> oh, man. Exactly. Don't mess with nature. Huh? I know. Bernie, how does the Tennessee Aquarium come into play and what's your role with the species? So the Tennessee Aquarium has been part of a Barron's Top Minnow Cooperative program for almost 18 years now, 20 years. And we have propagated and held Barron's Top Minnows for reintroduction and introduction into unoccupied springs along with Conservation Fisheries Incorporated from Knoxville and Dale Hollow National Fish Hatchery. Recently, we began an ARC project with other aquaria and the Shedd Aquarium, the Maritime Aquarium in Connecticut, and the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium in Iowa. We've sent Barron's Top Minnows to them to propagate and send back to us to stock. So we've really been involved in the ARC populations as well as spawning these guys for reintroduction. Okay. So you're sending these to places like up in Chicago, the Midwest, up to Connecticut. How difficult is it to maintain these fish in aquaria and maintain these ARC populations? I, I get it, you guys in the Tennessee Aquarium being down in that sort of area being able to do it, but sending it all over the country seems like these guys are able to do it just as easily. You know, that's one of the things that's just so ironic about these fish. So frustrating. It's so frustrating. (laughs) Bring them in into these round cattle troughs. You throw in some aquatic vegetation, they can sit outside in the shade and the fish propagate and do fine. I mean, it's not even aquatic vegetation. It's balls of yarn. Oh, wow. (laughs) And our spawning tanks, we have plastic plants that they spawn on and and yarn. But that invasive species just, they don't stand a chance even being so easy to raise. Back before it was listed, some of these were taken from the type locality and made it into some killifish collectors in Europe. And so there's a backyard pond (laughs) in Germany somewhere with some of these swimming around. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> it's the genetic maintenance is the hard part of the propagation side, keeping them from inbreedings. Yeah, I was going to ask a follow-up to that. How big are these arc populations? And then what are you doing to make sure that you're, one, in maintaining the genetic integrity of these individual populations that you have while also preventing this inbreeding depression that you could get? This is the problem. So... Warren mentioned, historically, there were three distinct populations, and they're really two evolutionary distinct units, one in the Elk River, 
and one now in the Caney Fork. But the Elk River, the native population, which was this huge, gorgeous pond spring, mosquito fish got in there. They survived for quite a few years, but then cattle got in and messed up the habitat, and now they're extirpated since 2012. So we don't have any new wild source population to infuse new genetics into that Elk River arc population. So we can only switch broodstock and offspring of broodstock, F1s and F2s, so many times between the three institutions that are maintaining this arc population. And every generation, you lose a little genetic diversity. And, you know, it's kind of this spiral towards genetic extinction eventually. There's, you know, our populations are only as good as the genetics are. And, you know, we're not magicians. You can only do so much. Yeah, interesting. Considering how prolific these Barron's top minnow can be breeding in captivity, do you have any places at the aquarium where people can see them? We do. We have a tiny but mighty important exhibit, which has about nine aquaria in it with Barron's top minnows. Um, Is there any work being done to actually eradicate the mosquito fish from these areas? I imagine that'd be a very tough job given their size, but what's being done on the invasive species front? That's been done in a few places. Uh, Route known doesn't seem to touch the mosquito fish much. So antimycin Mm -hmm. is the piscicide of preference for them. But several years ago, I guess around 2006, Tennessee National Wildlife Refuge, so another branch of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, acquired a property in one of the Caney Fork drainages near a natural site for Barron's Top Minnow. They built a barrier and poisoned the mosquito fish out with the help of folks from Great Smoky Mountains National Park and stocked in top minnows, and they were doing great. And then in 2010, we had a 500-year flood event, 1,000-year flood event, and it overtopped the barrier and mosquito fish got in. Oh, and no. that repeated pattern of three to five years, the top minnows were gone. Oh, so man. That sucks. We're revisiting that site since it is a service-owned site. Most of the populations for this species are on private property. Yeah. Is there anything being done with like private landowners out of your office? Or, and also, what's the role of the national fish hatcheries and all this? Yeah, I'll I'll start with the hatcheries because they've been very important to the arc population work. Dale Hollow is holding fish from the Caney Fork drainage and Wolf Creek National Fish Hatchery in Kentucky are holding fish from the Elk River population. And some of the other folks from a more regional side of fisheries and aquatic conservation, which is the branch over hatcheries, is working on updating the propagation and reintroduction plan for the species. So we can reinvigorate the reintroductions. On private lands, we have the Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, which is our private lands folks who work with some of the landowners in these places, improving habitat, finding locations to potentially reintroduce, and just you know building that relationship. That'd be cool. Have some top minnows on your land. That's cool. I am a bit curious. What was people's reaction kind of across the plateau where these fish are found to it becoming an endangered species and now potentially having to operate themselves differently on their private lands? Well, that was kind of the odd thing. This species was initially proposed for listing in 1977. And 
there's a link right. with the snail darter. The authors for the species who described it were Dave Etnire and Jim Williams, who was the Fish and Wildlife Service biologist who worked on the snail darter listing. And Etnire was the ichthyologist who discovered it. According to Jim, there was pushback at the time for mm-hmm. proposing another small fish on private property in Middle Tennessee at the time. And oh. there was just not the stomach to complete the listing. So there was a lot of effort with the state and with Fish and Wildlife Service to stock them into places and build these barriers and try to conserve the species without listing it. Unfortunately, just the expansion of mosquito fish outran that work. We've reached a point where listing was needed. And what year were they listed? 2019 was when it was finalized. Another reason it took a while to get the listing is there was a bunch of conservation agreements with private landowners. And that was an effort to try to turn the corner with the species and not actually list it. And unfortunately, it's the mosquito fish is the main driver for Mm -hmm. this species disappearing. And so even if these landowners did everything right with the conservation agreement, they had to be listed eventually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, by the time we listed it, it was in so few places, it really didn't impact that many individuals. As we go forward, we're currently working on the recovery plan now. And a big part of that is going to be coming up with a way to reintroduce this to new sites in a way that protects the fish, but also protects the landowners. We want them to help. Okay. Any other messages you want to get out to the landowners about that? Yeah. I mean, reach out if you think you're in the range and have a spring. I'm going down to a potential site in a known previously occupied watershed. Somebody who wants to rehabilitate a pond and potentially put some native fish in it. So That's great. Bernie, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got interested in fish and kind of your career path to where you are today. So I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And um, when I was about two semesters from graduate, I'm like, you know, this sucks. I want to work <laughs> with animals. So my second class was vertebrate zoology, and it was an ichthyologist who taught it. And we went to this small creek, it wasn't more than 15 feet across, right next to campus. Jumped in and we got 20 species of fish there, including mm. gorgeous southern red-bellied dace. Mm. And pun intended, I was hooked. And so then I started volunteering in his lab. And then I went back to graduate school and the rest is history. I was at the University of Alabama for 25 years as the collections manager of the fish collection there. Over a million mm-hmm. specimens in about 120,000 jars. Oh my goodness. And then I just started to get into all the endangered species. I was in the middle of the fight with the Alabama sturgeon to get it listed over an 11 year period. That took a couple of years off my life. And <laughs> now I've worked with around 25 endangered fishes over my career. So I like them. All in the Southeast, it seems like a kind of a hot spot down there for yeah. endangered, endemic, cool fishes. So to bring us back to Baron's Top Minnow, uh, Bernie, do you know anyone named Robert Lamb? I do. 
he might have discovered a new population of Baron's top minnows. You're kidding oh me. <laughs> I would not joke about that. How did this guy find him? Who is this dude? Who is Robert Lamb? So What's this story? I run into Robert at PetSmart. He works there. And every time I see him, I figure, okay, I'm going to be here at least a half an hour. And we talk fish. So he's just a guy that is so fired up about freshwater fishes. He does all of this in his own time. He goes snorkeling everywhere. And he just happened to be poking around in the extreme upper Collins river, really where it has just eroded down on the Cumberland plateau. You're not even on the Barron's plateau anymore, technically. And he found what he thought was Barron's top. And I remember he showed me the picture that he, took of one on his phone. I'm like, that's it. Oh, man. That'd be exciting. <laughs> wow. That's exciting. It's cool that people just get, getting out there and exploring, you don't have to have a degree in fishery science. You don't have to be working for one of these institutions to actually have a potential big impact. We'll see where this goes. I'm looking forward to following the story more as it unfolds. Yeah. And that's why at the Tennessee Aquarium, you know, our main focus is conserving freshwater habitats and the critters that live in them right here in our backyard in the southeast. Because the more we can get the public engaged, the more we may have the public putting their faces in the water and finding more discoveries. And more importantly, they will go to the politicians and have them go to Washington and fight for environmental dollars to come to the southeast. So <laughs> you know, that's one of the main missions and that's why a third of my time is outreach. And I love doing it. Awesome. Okay. I was doing some research ahead of this and I reached out to some people in Fish and Wildlife and they gave me some bullet points to weave in. But I was like, okay, how do we do this in a fun way? But can we just like take turns reading these bullet points and then try to read them together and see how it goes? Official language from the shield. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has announced that $62.5 million in the Inflation Reduction Act funding will be invested over the next several years into addressing recovery planning efforts. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me try that again. Recovery planning efforts and threatened and endangered species. Biologists are initially focusing on efforts on recovery planning for 32 threatened and endangered species. <laughs> Make it more fun, Warren. No, I'm just kidding. Add are some pep. Sorry. Biologists like me are initially focusing on efforts. Ah. It's harder than it looks. That's why we have conversation. Yeah. Biologists like me are initially focusing efforts on recovery planning for 32 threatened and endangered species that have completed species status assessments, which serve as the biological background for recovery planning. And the Barron's top minnow is one of these 32 species. Woohoo! Final recovery plans for all listed species are essential for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to deliver the roadmaps necessary for recovery partnerships, funding, and efficient and effective recovery. Ram, Wait, it's, it said recovery implementation efforts. Oops. Hold on. My thing wasn't scrolled down. Final recovery plans for all listed species are essential for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to deliver the roadmaps necessary for recovery partnerships, funding, and efficient and effective recovery implementation efforts. Thank you, Guy. It's not fair. She's been sitting on this for like a week or whatever. I, She's I gotten to read been, it. I have not been practicing. <laughs> are you too hopeful for the future of this fish? And if so, what are you hopeful for? You got to be hopeful. In this business, you have to be hopeful. You have to be an optimist. Otherwise, there's no point. 
you know, I don't know what recovered will look like for this species. Recovered under the act could be that the state and partners are doing enough with permanent enough funding that it doesn't need federal protection under the act, but will still be very heavily management based. Unless the barrens start looking like that Pleistocene prairie again with no barriers and no mosquito fish, I don't know what natural recovery with interconnected populations looks like. But I mean, like we've talked about, they're easy to produce. So once we can figure out where to stock them and how to get folks on board and build effective barriers to mosquito fish, I think we can get them out in places. Okay. And I'm very optimistic with the discovery of this new population in what was the Cumberland Plateau, and it's just been eroded down to base level by the river. We haven't looked in these places for Barron's Totman as we've stuck on the Barron's Plateau proper. So this opens up a whole new area on the western edge of the Cumberland Plateau where you've got these hollows and coves that there could be other springs with Barron's Totman that was in them. Oh, that's exciting. That is exciting. And over there, that population, it's right next to, I think I saw some like 10 feet from a blue mask garter over there. Wow. And there's other endemics, barons darters and corrugated darters. That discovery really turned around my head for, you know, hope for the species. And I guess in terms of kind of this hopeful vein, any messages for the public out there, folks in this area, in terms of why they should care about this fish in its future? 40% of Americans get their drinking water from wells. What do wells tap into? Aquifers. What feeds the springs that Barron's Tatmanos live in? Aquifers. So the more we can protect the habitat for the Barron's Tatmanos, the more we're protecting drinking water for 40% of the folks out there. That's a direct connection between conservation of a fish and conservation of a human resource. All of these tiny but mighty important fishes are just crucial to humans. Awesome. I mean, that that really nails it. It's a pretty fish found only here. I mean, that's something to be proud of. All right, cool. This was great having you two on. Really appreciate it. This was fascinating. This was really fun. Thanks, yeah, guys. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. All right, we'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the Baron's Top Minnow. And I guess a challenge to folks out there, go try to find some of these fish in Tennessee. Woohoo! Woo! Yeah! <laughs> Woo! Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. If we're going to be proud of things that, you know, in Tennessee, things in Alabama, you know, Alabama and Tennessee go back and forth arguing about, I mean, besides football, uh, <laughs> who has more native fish. 
And I think Alabama's ahead right now, but oh um, man, Tennessee, Tennessee is up by two. <laughs> oh yeah, in the latest Southeastern Fishes Council fish list, they're up by two. But oh, good. all Hi, we Alabama. need is a couple more species described in Alabama, and Alabama will be in the lead. So we'll see. So who are you rooting for, Bernie, given your past and your present? Oh, it's tough. Uh, Roll Tide. Ooh, War Eagle. <laughs> 